I want to read for you a short story, true story, and uh, it'll flow right into our text here in James chapter 3. In 1899, four newspaper reporters from Denver, Colorado set out to, fear, to tear down uh, the Great Wall of China. They almost succeeded, literally. The four met by chance on Saturday night in a Denver railroad depot. Al Stevens, Jack Tornay, John Lewis, and Hal Wishar. They represented the four Denver newspapers, The Post, The Times, The Republican, and Rocky Mountain News. Each had been sent by his respective paper to dig up a story, any story, for the Sunday edition. So the reporters were in the railroad station hoping to snag a visiting celebrity that would happen to arrive that evening by train. None arrived that evening by train or otherwise. The reporters started commiserating. For them, no news was bad news, and they are all facing empty-handed returns to their city desks. Al declared that he was going to make up a story and hand it in. The other three laughed. Some, someone suggested that they all walk over to the Oxford Hotel and have a beer, which they did. Jack said that he liked Al's idea about faking a story. Why didn't each of them fake a story and get off the hook? John said Jack was thinking too small. Four half-baked fakes didn't cut it, he said. What they needed was one real whopper that they could use, all of them could use. Another round of beers took place. A phony domestic story would be too easy to check on, so they began discussing foreign angles that would be difficult to verify. China was distant enough, <clears throat> it was agreed. They would write about China. John leaned forward and gesturing dramatically in the dim light of the bar room. Try this one on, he said. A group of American engineer, engineers stopping over in Denver en route to China. The Chinese government is making plans to demolish the Great Wall and our engineers are bidding on the job. Harold was skeptical. Why would the Chinese want to destroy the Great Wall of China? John thought for a moment, well, they're tearing down the ancient boundary to symbolize international goodwill and a welcome to foreign trade. Another round of beers took place. <laughs> By 11 p.m., the four reporters had worked out all the details of their preposterous story. After leaving the Oxford bar, they would go over to the Windsor Hotel. They would sign in four fictitious names at the hotel register. They would instruct the desk clerk to tell anyone who asked that four New Yorkers had arrived that evening and had been interviewed by reporters and had left early the next morning for California. <clears throat> the Denver newspaper carried the story. All four of them carried the story on the front page. In fact, the Times headline on that Sunday read, Great Chinese Wall is Doomed, Peking is Seeking World Trade. Of course, the story was a phony, a ludicrous fabrication concocted by four capricious news people in a hotel bar, but their story was taken seriously, and it picked up and expanded uh, in the rest of the states and other newspapers on the East Coast, uh, and then to newspapers abroad. When the Chinese themselves heard about the story that the Americans were sending a demolition crew to tear down their national monument, most were indignant, but some were enraged. Particularly incensed were the members of a secret society, a volatile group of Chinese patriots who were already wary of foreign, foreign intervention. They, ins they, inspired by the story, exploded, rampaged against foreign embassies in Peking, and slaughtered hundreds of missionaries. <clears throat> in two months, 
12,000 troops from six countries joined forces and invaded China with the purpose of protecting their own countrymen. The bloodshed that followed, sparked by a journalistic hoax invented in a bar room in Denver, became the white-hot international conflagration known to every high school student as the Boxer Revolution, the Boxer Rebellion, from which thousands and thousands of people died because of a lie <laughs> four newspapermen decided to tell in a bar one night. As astonishing as this true story is, it really doesn't surprise us, does it? What the tongue is capable of? Living in this country with the things that we hear, it's not surprising that this kind of thing could happen. I think we're shocked at the the massive impact that four lies uh, had. But nevertheless, we've lived long enough to know that the tongue is a source of many problems, haven't we? It's been said that 90, 99% of the world's problems would disappear if we could all control our tongues. The tongue is of great concern to James. He brings the issue of the tongue up in every single chapter in this book. But the tongue only produces what it's told to produce by the heart. So blaming uh, the tongue is like blaming the axe for cutting down the tree. That's not, that doesn't work, does it? Someone has to swing the axe. Someone has to speak the word, move the tongue. Jesus said this in Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, that whatever comes off my tongue comes out of my heart. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? I think that's true. So what you are will inevitably be, inevitably, inevitably be exposed by what you say. Your, your tongue gives away your identity, your true identity. It could be said that a person's speech is a reliable measure of his spiritual condition, a barometer of the heart. John MacArthur wrote this, the tongue is you in a unique way. It is a tattletale that tells on the heart and discloses the real person. In James 3, we have the sixth test of authentic faith. We've covered five tests of authentic faith. Here's the sixth one, the sixth test of authentic faith. And here's, here it is. Listen closely. Can you control your tongue? That's the test. Do you control your tongue? I've, I've divided up today's passage into three sections, verses 1 through 4, 5 through 8, and 9 through 12. James, I think, is on to something here, significant, because of something that Paul said in Romans chapter 3. When Paul was describing the sinful condition of every human, when he was establishing the guilt of every human being as a sinner, this is what he said. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And he was talking about you and me, talking about the world at large. And what, how did he prove that we're all guilty? He says our tongues give it away. That was what Paul said. James happens to agree with him. The Bible, in fact, has much to say about the problem of the tongue. 
We're going to be in and out of Proverbs all morning here, so uh, keep that in mind. But Proverbs 6.16, for example, says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. So in the list of seven things that God hates, the second in line is the lying tongue. Uh, on the other hand, the spiritually mature person, according to Scripture, is recognized by their righteous speech. This is seen all over Scripture. When God converts the soul and regenerates the heart, a new, a new tongue comes along with the deal. A new nature always comes, or with a new nature always comes a, a new tongue. True believers possess a sanctified tongue, but I think it's important that you, that you hear that we continually need to be alert, even as Christians, especially as Christians, to the natural tendencies of our tongue. Just because we have a new nature doesn't mean we, have to, we don't have to worry about struggling with our tongue any longer. So let's, let's dive into verses 1 through 4, and I want to I talk to you about the direction that can come from the tongue. Let me read 1 through 4 again for you. <clears throat> Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know, what, you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of Pilate directs. So it seems like James here, at least in verses 1 and 2, James was dealing with a group of people who believed that being a teacher or a preacher would bring some kind of fame or fortune, accolade, something. Um, so James felt like he needed to address those uh, who were claiming to be teachers, claiming to be preachers, that really weren't ordained to be such by God. Uh, they, they wanted these, these people who claimed to be teachers and preachers, they wanted the accolades but not the accountability of teaching. They wanted the respect, but not the responsibility of teaching. James tells us, needed to tell them, that with the role of teacher comes a greater accountability and stricter judgment. And by the way, it's judgment of God, not judgment of the audience. <laughs> um, and I, I think that most preachers have thought about this uh, more than once. I think if more preachers thought about it more often, there might be less foolishness in the pulpit. But that is, that is what it is. The reason that God holds teachers, I think, to a higher standard, um, and as we read there in verse 1, is because with the, the position of teacher or preacher comes a spiritual influence, a, a direction that is God-intended. God uses preachers and teachers to guide the people under whom are being taught. So, this principle was first introduced in chapter 1, verse 19. You remember um, where James said to be quick to the hearing of the word and slow to the speaking of it. Giving the caution that he does here in verse 1, let not many of you become teachers. Uh, he's, he's mentioning something, I think, critically important to all of us. I don't think he wants to do, discourage 
people from communicating their biblical insights. I don't think he wants to hinder those who are genuinely called by God to the gospel ministry or the teaching or preaching ministry. I think what he's saying um, is that those who believe they have such a divine calling as teaching or preaching should first test their faith to be sure they're saved. What the church doesn't need is unsaved teachers. James chapter 1 verse 26 said that faith is not authentic if it is accompanied by an unbridled tongue. So teachers at least need to examine what comes out of their mouths. It's important that I'm cautious about what is said up here, in which I've explained this to you before. But the reason I'm, I'm so connected to my notes is I don't trust my tongue <laughs> to say what needs to be said in the way it needs to be said. And so I, I've got my eyes on my notes often. Although a teacher's tongue is moving more than the average Christian, they're not the only ones who, I think, struggle with the issue. James says there in verse 2 that we all struggle with this in many ways, right? We all struggle in many ways. That's including everybody. Um, and I think the sins of the tongue are at the top of that list. At least they were second on the list of the sins that God hates. So this test of authentic faith is, I think, easy to identify in our lives. It's just by remembering what you say. What have you said that confirms the presence of Christ in your heart? What have you said that denies the presence of Christ in your heart? Does your tongue reveal a renewed spirit? Does how you talk and what you talk about demonstrate Christ? Now, I'm not talking about uh, what you say in the church lobby. I mean, there's only so much you're, you will be willing to say out there. Uh, I'm talking about in the, the spectrum of your life, what is it that comes out of your mouth and how does it come out? Is it, is it something that would uh, raise your sensitivities a bit, hearing what James is saying? Uh, do you speak in such a way that it would surprise those who are listening that you are a believer? Um, this is what James is after here. Um, but in the middle of this difficult test um, of authentic faith, I think James gives us a little, a little uh, relief of sorts. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. Uh, and, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. So, uh, there's a danger here, what James is saying, the way he's saying it, because it, we're the type, because of our character and our, and our sinfulness, to say, well, James just said everybody does it. It's no big deal, right? Everybody, everybody's got mouth problem. And that is true. But we can't miss the test. James is using this as a test of authentic, authentic faith. If you were to look at the, the, the bulk of your language over the past year, would an independent observer identify you as a Christian or not, is what James wants us to think about. He doesn't want us to uh, reject this test simply because we all have times of guiltiness in it. He, doesn't want, he wants us to think clearly and look closely at our own lives. But there is a bit of 
relief here because, in fact, no one's perfect, <laughs> right? There's no one other than Christ that is perfect with the use of their tongue. In fact, in fact, it might even be better to transla translate the word perfect that we see here in verse 2. He is a perfect man to translate that either um, mature or complete. The Greek, word, the Greek word used here is translated in all those ways. Perfect, complete, mature. Even in James, uh, translators have translated that same word to be complete in chapter 1. So it could be complete here too. What's the point? The, the point is the less, we the less we stumble with our tongue, the more complete or more mature we prove to be. I think that's what James is after here. Does, does the, the, the corpus of your language, your speech, tend to, to, to uh, reveal your connectedness to Christ or the opposite? That is... I think what James wants us to consider. With the progress of sanctification that we each are going through, that is becoming like Christ, that's what sanctification means, the Holy Spirit works in us these, these acts of sanctification. He, he takes us through the Word. He takes us through experience. He takes us through trials to sanctify us so that we'll become more and more like Jesus. In that process, the tongue also becomes more and more sanctified. What you say, what you don't say, how you say it becomes more and more like Christ as well. I think this is why Paul, in listing the qualifications for elder to Timothy and Titus, include that elders must be prudent and self-controlled even in their speech. James isn't overstating his case here when he, he lists these, these two illustrations of... of uh, verses 1 through 4, when he talks about the bits in horses' mouths and the, and the rudder of a, of a ship. That, that seems like a, a pretty uh, dramatic illustration, but it is actually the truth and, and accurate. The, the tongue can affect the entire body. Uh, you learned this in junior high, that your tongue can affect the entire body when you smarted off to someone who's bigger than you. Didn't you? You learned that your tongue can get you in trouble. Maybe you learned it at home when you sassed your parents or when you got into an argument with your sibling. We learn through experience that this thing gets us in trouble. So he's not overstating his case. He's not carelessly using the illustrations that we have here in these verses. So I think, I think that, that it's important to consider these things. In World War II, there was a popular saying, loose lips sink ships. Anybody ever hear that before? It came from World War II. And uh, it is also true in our day. We might not be able to literally sink a ship, although we might. If four uh, newspapermen can, can have such a dramatic effect on people in China, I'm certain that we could probably sink a ship somehow, with what we say. But that's not his point. The point is, is that, that the, the tongue is capable of sinking lives, sinking relationships, sinking families, sinking jobs, sink, sinking churches. Look at verse 3. 
It says, but a small bit allows the rider to control a massive horse. You know, these, these thoroughbreds that race around the track can cover, because of their strength, uh, about a quarter mile in 24, 25 seconds. These animals are weighing 700 to 1,000 pounds, carrying a 100-pound jockey. And that jockey is in control. In a different environment, a bit can make a horse dance, not just run around a circle. Bits can control horses, like rudders can control ships, like tongues can control lives. And that's something that I want you to identify or, or recognize here in these four verses. That the bit and the rudder aren't independent of the rider or the pilot. The rider and the pilot are controlling the bit and the rudder as we should be in control of our tongue. King David and, and Jesus, and along with many others, but I'm just going to use them as examples, knew that the heart was the key to controlling the tongue. Uh, Psalm 41, David said, 141, verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keeping watch over the door of my lips. He knew that his mouth could get him into trouble. And Jesus confirmed this in Matthew 12, verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Almost every single uh, author of Scripture uh, ha has some interaction about speech or tongue or something and the, and the effect of it. Um, do you remember when Jesus Christ uh, converted your soul? Do you remember when he became Lord of your heart? Do you remember a date? Maybe, maybe not. The date's not important. But when he became Lord of your life, that included your tongue, didn't it? I think so. The bit and the rudder have the power to guide and direct, which means they can affect the lives of many others. A runaway horse, a shipwreck can leave people injured and dead. The words that we speak or the words that we write can and do affect the lives of many people around us. Our words direct people for good or for bad. Simple words like yes and no um, can have a lifelong effect on people. Has anybody ever told you that something you said impacted them or stuck with them? Anybody ever told you that? We hear that from time to time, right? Yeah. Well, um, our words are powerful. The, the use of our tongue is important. Our words can be good or bad. They can influence, influence people for the good or the bad. You remember the, the few words that Jesus had with the woman at the well in John 4, the woman of Sychar? How much impact did that have? Uh, the whole town came to Christ. So she ran back to the town and they all came out and received Christ because of a few words from Jesus. Anybody remember Acts 2? Peter had a few words to say in Acts 2. How much influence has that sermon or whatever that he preached, sermonette, uh, how much influence did that have on the world? Can I, can I suggest something to you? You're in this room this morning because of the sermon Peter preached in Acts 2. You're here today because of that sermon. 
One sermon, one conversation, one word, and it just explodes onto the world. On April 21st, April 21st, 1855, a man named Ed Kimball went into a Boston shoe store to buy some shoes, and lo and behold, D.L. Moody was the shoe salesman, a young man. Kimball led Moody to Christ while he was trying on shoes. And of course, we know the rest of the story about D.L. Moody, don't we? Not too much of us knew anything about Ed Kimball, but D.L. Moody is probably one of the world's greatest evangelists ever. A few words over trying on shoes. <laughs> Another story that you're familiar with, a substitute lay preacher had to take over preaching duties in his church in London because the pastor couldn't make it there because of a snowstorm. So a substitute teacher, lay teacher, got up and preached on Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 and that said, look unto me and be saved. Who was in the audience? Who knows the story? Charles Spurgeon, some nobody, right? No, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, who's probably had more influence on our culture than anything else. Our Christian culture, I should say. Just a few words from an untrained layman filling in for the pastor. By the way, layman, keep that in mind if I don't show up. <clears throat> Let's look at a second point, next four verses, five, six, seven, and eight. So also the tongue is small, is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless, restless evil full of deadly poison. So in these verses, James is illustrating the destructive power of fire and all sorts of wild animals to warn us about the power that this small muscle has in our mouth. Think about the destructive nature of fire with me for a second. You know, just a few months ago, the California campfire was extinguished after burning for how long? Uh, they say it was the biggest fire in California state history. Billions of dollars lost. Thousands of homes burnt to the ground. I think 85 or 87 people lost their lives. And then a, a few years back, Sherry and I were on our just a vacation up at Glacier National Park, and we got there about a week before the thing went up in flames. And then I looked online to look at pictures at the the result, devastation from a fire. And of course, October 8, 1871, one of the most famous fires in United States history in Chicago, was started in the O'Leary barn when Mrs. O'Leary was milking her cow and a cow kicked over the lantern. 
And you, you know how many buildings burned down that night in Chicago? 17,500 buildings burned down in Chicago. 300 people died that night. And in that city was D.L. Moody. He was, had an evangelistic event the night of the fire in Chicago. Let's see how God's word connects the danger of fire to our tongues. Proverbs 26, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. That's not too profound. But look at the next line. And where there's no whisperer or gossip, where there's no gossip, quarreling ceases. You know why we can't seem to get out of a fight or out of a quarrel? Someone keeps flapping their lips. That's what this says. <laughs> a charcoal, <clears throat> as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. I think this truth is no more evident than in churches because people cannot control their tongues or their fingers typing for their tongues. Uh, there is a mass destruction taking place in American churches. Churches are split, friendships are ruined, families are devastated, the name of Christ is derided because someone can't control their tongue or their finger typing on Facebook. Unbelievable. No, it's very believable, right? We know ourselves. <laughs> this is very believable. Proverbs 17, 27, Who, whoever restrains his words or his fingers has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. James, you see, James has engaged all of these biblical concepts, biblical thoughts. He's, he's read all this stuff. He spent time with Christ. He was Jesus' brother, younger brother. He's, he's heard all these sentences and, and words that I've been talking to you about, including these from Proverbs. And so when he wants to help people uh, examine the authenticity of their faith, he goes right to the heart of every one of our struggles. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. You see, fires, as devastating as they are, all start small, right? Fires start small, but fires unless checked, grow. As long as there's fuel, they grow. And the same thing is the case with the tongue. It may start small, maybe if there is such a thing, with an innocent word or statement. And then the next thing you know, you got mayhem going on. The injury done by the tongue grows and grows and grows even into following decades. I've talked to people, and this, this blows my mind, but I've talked to people who haven't talked to their parents for 20 years because of something that they said over a dinner table. It's like, this is, and it's not uncommon. It starts small, like four half-drunk newspaper guys in Denver trying to get out of getting in trouble 
come back with a phony story, and thousands of people within a few months are killing each other over in China over this. All they were doing, have a little conversation, a little couple beers. It's, the tongue is just like that. Entire communities, churches can be destroyed. So fires start small but grow. Fires also create heat. In, in Psalm 39, uh, David is, is listening to all the slander that's taking place about him. And he wants so bad to go out and correct it and say something and do something. But he resists and resists and resists up to verse 4. And then he engages the person who was slandering him. And he feels so embarrassed, so sorry, because the heat that he was experiencing got out of his mouth and it ruined a ton of things that were going on in his life at the moment. He spends the rest of the psalm pleading God's mercy because of his own fiery response to someone who was slandering him. I think an important truth that we need to know as Christians is that Jesus and his apostles warned that following Jesus, following his will, obeying his word, is going to result in slander. In fact, Jesus said, woe is you if people speak good of you. You know, and if that's the case, maybe we should brag about all the slander that's being talked about about us. Fire creates heat. Tongues create heat. Fire also defiles. You know, you got the fire goes through, burns all the trees out of the, the forest or through the house. And you go back, you know, a week later, what do you see? A lot of black soot, charred wood, you know, junk laying around. If it was something that a fireman could get to, a lot of, you know, wet insulation, that kind of stuff, just a mess. Smoke damage. Uh, firefighters, you know, this campfire that, that I think ended officially a couple months ago uh, or a month ago, they said they'll be working on putting out little small buried fires for six months because it's still burning just underneath the ground. Friends, fire defiles like the tongue defiles. You know, I may say something unfair about you or to you or, or let my, my tongue uh, be an instrument of Satan instead of of Christ. And even if I confess it and repent and, and come to you and ask for forgiveness, there's still the black soot of the event that remains. And from all of this, we have fires that start small and grow, fires that create heat, fires also defiling. From all this, there's only one solution. There's only one firefighter. You want to tell me who he is? Yeah, Jesus. Jesus is the only solution to the fires that our tongues create. The blood of Christ is the only answer, the only solution, the only remedy to a foul tongue. I think I cannot overemphasize the importance of Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, not just when people are nice to you, not when just you're feeling healthy or having fun, 
or you're on vacation. No, let your speech always be gracious. Even when people have said false, slanderous, hurtful things about you, it does not give the Christian right to respond, ever. Not only is the tongue dangerous because it's like fire, but it's also dangerous because it's like a wild animal. You see that here. He talks about taming these beasts and how the tongue can't be tamed. When I took my family through Yellowstone 20 years ago or something like that, um, 15 years ago maybe, I don't know. Uh, they had these, these signs up every once in a while that said, please stay in your car. Don't leave your car. And then it had a picture below that, that sign with a bison goring some dude. You know, it's like, this is why you stay in your car. You don't, when you're, when you're going on a safari, you know, I've seen some of these on, on TV, but they have these open Jeeps on a safari. No, thank you. Or they sit on the front of the bumper. Yeah. The, uh, the selfie isn't worth it. Okay? Stay in your car. Now, let me tell you why I said that. We may be smart enough to keep our doors, our doors closed and, and stay inside the car in an animal park, wild animal park, um, and I would hope that we're not dumb enough to turn wild animals loose in here on a Sunday service. Hey, Marlon, bring in, bring in the lions. We've got some hungry lions out there in the lobby. Bring them in. Yeah, Dan, could you go get the box of black mamas? We're going to turn them loose. We're going to have some fun this morning. That's insanity, isn't it? And yet James is saying every time your tongue gets away from you, that's what you're doing. You're turning wild animals loose on people you love, no less. We have to guard against the wild tongue. I, I hope that we are diligent here in this church about this. I wanted to have you focus on verse 5 for a second. It says, so the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The, there's a word that's not translated in, in most English translations there. It comes right before the word how. All right, that second phrase, second clause, it comes right before that. And it, in, it translates into English as behold or pay attention. So, so James is saying, Wake up and listen closely to me. Pay attention. Behold how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Talking about the tongue. James is concerned about this. He's wanting us to consider our, our lives, our speech. This is a test of authentic faith. Does how you talk reflect or not the presence of Christ? Not just how, but what you say. Let's move on to the third point, verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> with it, that is with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. 
which we did this morning. Great singing, by the way, this morning. I enjoyed listening to you. Uh, so we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, wait a minute, the same tongue, we curse people who are made in, in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does the spring forth or pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? What's the obvious answer? No. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So again, here, here he's bringing to the forefront the test. Every one of these tests, you remember, there, there's a contrasting point, points, two contrasting points. And, and based on where you fall on, these, on, this, on the spectrum of these or on the scale of these contrasting points gives you an indication of how spiritually healthy or unhealthy you are. So does your tongue get the best of you or do you get the best of your tongue? What is the trajectory? If someone looked down the spine of your life, which direction would it be facing? The mountain spring and the fruit-bearing tree can both be of great encouragement. Our third point, delight from the tongue. I want to end here because I want to encourage you to, to set a pace in 2019. But let me work through this for a second. The tongue, of course, as, as we've just learned from the last four verses, can be the source of, of chaos and destruction, like fire, like wild animals. But it also can be a source of refreshment, of hope, of peace, of joy, encouragement, strengthening, all these things. Let's, let's take these, both of these things, the spring and the tree. Let's look at the spring first, the mountain spring. I, I think we don't have to talk too long about this because we all understand water and the importance of water in our lives. But there is something special about the, 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 the freshness of a mountain spring water. I don't know if you've ever had that. Um, it isn't sparklets, even though they claim that. It's not that. It's something. I've only tasted mountain spring water once in my life. And it was in, it was, it was a flowing literally out of a mountain called Cotopaxi in Ecuador. The spring was under the mountain, flowing out, dipped in. Ah, water does have a taste, I think. At least it, I don't know what it is, but it's refreshing. It's, it's enjoyable. That is what we can be with the proper use of our tongues to everybody around us. A, f a fresh encouraging sense where they leave the room way better than when they came because you were there. Our words are so important. Look at Proverbs 18, 14. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Does that sound good to you? Sound refreshing to you? So what will your tongue be, Christian? Sun Valley Church Christian, what will you say to be a cool refreshment to those who need such refreshment in your life? Will your words be strengthening or weakening, encouraging or discouraging, consuming or building up? Fresh water is life-giving. Proverbs 10, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. 
But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. You see the two opposite ends there again? So, Proverbs 12, 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Aren't these great contrasts for us? Water also cleanses, we read in John 15, 3, and Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that the word of God acts like a cleansing agent in our lives. Jesus said this, Paul said this to the Ephesian church, that God's word actually washes over us and cleanses us from filthiness. And so when we are uh, carefully and lovingly use the word of God with people around us, it is a source of refreshment, encouraging refreshment. Let's think about the tree for a second. You know, we've, we've covered trees before, even in James. Only good trees bear good fruit, right? James goes a little bit off, off course here and brings in figs and, and grapevines and, and uh, so forth. But the, the idea here is in order for the fig or the, any fruit-bearing tree, for that matter, uh, to be productive, they need good water and good soil, right? Am I right, orchardist? You need good water and good soil? I think so. Dennis could confirm that, but I think that's the case. Uh, if you have bad soil and no water, you're not going to have a fruit-bearing tree. So what does that mean for your tongue? Does there not need to be some enriching soil, some refreshing, cleansing water in your own life? If you're going to have fruit production that's encouraging, um, satisfying, fulfilling to those around you, like the psalmist in one, chapter 1, verse 3, the blessed man is like the tree planted by streams of water. That tree planted by water yields fruit. He, in all he does, he prospers. See, the, the blessed and godly man or woman whose roots go deep into the things of God will be a source of hope, a source of strength, a source of encouragement to everybody they encounter. Um, do you know anybody like that? Just being in their presence, you walk away refreshed? I love those kind of people. I want to be one of those kind of people. But James warns in these few verses also that springs can potentially produce salt water. And I think he was getting that from the, the idea of the salt sea or the dead sea and the Sea of Galilee. He knew both of those you know, sources of salt versus fresh. But, but James warns here that this, this shouldn't be the case that we shouldn't have an inconsistent tongue, inconsistent practice of language uh, in our experience as a Christian. Now, he just got through saying in verse 2 that we will slip from time to time and say or do things or think things that we shouldn't, that we, we, we're not perfect. But the, again, back to the test. Do you see consistency on one side or the other? Have you noticed both fresh and salt water coming from your mouth to stay with the metaphor? If so, if you see that, and your spirit will probably tell you at this moment whether or not it's adequate or appropriate, the balance, and of course you're not looking for a balance, you're looking for you know, sweet water only. But if you've noticed an inconsistency, 
there may be something wrong with the heart, with the wellspring. To have a tongue that praises God in Sunday worship service and then argues and fights all the way home from church with the family would probably hear these words from James. These things ought not to be. What he says here in verse 10. So if you're one who experiences the inconsistent tongue as James is describing, you may have a heart problem and are in need of some divine medicine. Heart medicine, that is. And we just happen to know the, the, the person who can do that, right? Yeah, Jesus Christ and him alone. So if you want to be a delight to those around you in your life, um, then I think the first step is to spend more time with a delightful one. Capital D, capital O. That being Christ. You spend time with Christ, he rubs off on you. Jesus must, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, gain control of our tongue. And the only way he does that is by gaining control of your heart. And the only way he gains control of your heart if you submit to and submerge yourself in the scriptures. So, do you have a plan for 2019 to submerge, your, submerge yourself in the scriptures? I know a lot of you do. I've talked to you a lot about it. But how about you, personally? Do you have a plan? Because if you uh, fail to plan, plan to fail. You heard that? You shoot at nothing, you'll hit it every time. How about let's plan on getting the Word of God into our lives this year, submerging ourselves um, in God's Word like a a dill pickle does in dill juice. A cucumber, you know, dill pickles don't grow. You know that, right? Dill pickles are man-made. Now, some of you are going, what? <laughs> They're man-made. You get a cucumber and you throw it in the dill juice. Lo and behold, it tastes like a dill pickle when you pull it out of that thing. So how are you going to become like Jesus? How are you going to be a delight to those around you? Um... If Jesus is the delightful one, you got to submerge yourself in Christ. You got to be saturated with His Word. Warren Wiersbe, I, I was reading his commentary as I was studying for this uh, last week, and Warren Wiersbe—he's he's Mr. Practical, by the way, which is awesome. Short commentaries, I would recommend it, but short and sweet. Uh, he said there's 12 words that you can use that are taken from scriptural principles, 12 words from scripture uh, that transform not only our life, but the life of everyone in our sphere of influence. Do you want to hear what they are? Or should I close now in prayer? Okay, I'll tell you what they are. 12 words, please and thank you. Those are three, please and thank you. When you use, Wearsby says, the words please and thank you, you are treating others with respect and showing appreciation for them as an individual. Not for what they've done, but for them. Next two words, I'm sorry. These words break down walls and build bridges. The next three words, I love you. Not, not in a romantic sense. I mean, that's not bad, but not, this is what not Wearsby is thinking. 
these go much deeper than that. These are words that communicate value to someone. You are really important to me would be another way of saying I love you. And then the final four words, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Wiersbe's convinced if you will practice using those 12 words in your life, your world will dramatically change. That's for you to find out. But we know just from what we've read and heard this morning that the tongue is a mighty instrument, haven't we? We've seen it. It can be more powerful than armies. Um, when you think, think of in a classic example, Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler, a voice for, for destruction and voice, a voice for encouragement. Um, there's a good contrast for you. But friends, our, our tongues can be used by God or be used by the enemy to accomplish their purposes. Your, your lips, your tongue can be destructive or it can be a balm from heaven to bring hope, encouragement, and peace to someone that so desperately needs it. And I think we all know people who need it. Your tongue can be an ally of hell or ally of heaven. Which is it going to be? So how do we do this? How, I mean, let me just wrap it up here in one minute. How do we deal with this challenging piece of flesh that lies on the bottom of our mouth? First, pray and ask God to bridle your tongue. The, the words used here by James are not by accident. Pray and ask God to bridle your tongue. Put a guard over your lips or your fingertips. Secondly, Discipline your tongue for good. Discipline your tongue for good. Covenant with your tongue to not be critical of people or circumstances. Covenant with your tongue to not give or receive gossip. To not belittle or demean or falsely flatter or lie or boast. Covenant with your tongue that what leaves your mouth will be good got nothing good to say, don't say nothing at all. Have you heard that? Yeah, I learned that when I was a young man. So come in with your tongue to, for good uses on a daily basis. Maybe make that one of your, your 2019 goals is to say something positive. Use your tongue for something positive every day before you go to bed. Shouldn't be that hard. We all know people that need encouragement. Um, sh share the gospel with somebody, for example, if you need an example of how to use your tongue for good. Share the gospel with somebody. Worship Christ. So if you sang from your heart this morning the songs that we were singing, then you're done for today. All right? You can move on. Worship Christ. Build up a fellow believer. Pray for someone. Pray with someone. Send a, an email. Send a note. Friends, once we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, once we have acknowledged our sin and, and run to him for our only hope, run to him for forgiveness, uh, once the Holy Spirit has entered our heart by, by faith and the grace of God, the Holy Spirit begins to transform us. And with that transformation comes uh, a godly tongue. The tongue can be your biggest problem or your biggest asset. 
So in 2019, Sun Valley Church, let's make it our asset, okay? This morning, we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper right where you sit. Um, you, you, you know, having sat through all these sermons about the tests of faith, probably from time to time have, you know, gotten uneasy um, because of um, either how I preach it or how James says it. Um, but Augustine, in his comments about the book of James, uh, said, if that's the case, then the Holy Spirit has accomplished his purposes in you. If you have felt a little bit uneasy about the condition of your soul throughout our study of James, the great Augustine said, perfect. That is God's point in the book of James. So be encouraged, Christian friend. If you're a Christian, if you've embraced Christ, we want you to participate in the Lord's Supper. That picture his body and blood spilt for you, broken for you. What an amazing time we have here this morning, singing hymns, using our voice, our tongues for what they were designed for, to bring glory and praise and honor to God in Jesus Christ, maybe to be an encouragement to someone near you. But as you come forward today, just rejoice in God's grace and goodness towards you, and maybe think about how you can, before you leave the building, use your tongue for the reason it was designed to be an encouragement, a source of hope, a refreshment, a delight to those in the room. Uh, elders, if you could join me up here at this, at this time, I'm going to ask you to serve the people here. Uh, we're going to, like I said, serve you where you sit, but I want you to hold the element until everybody's served, and then we'll, as a demonstration of our unity and our commitment to one another in Christ, We'll take it together. Does that work for you? Okay. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then, Dennis, I'm going to ask you to pray for the bread. Um, and then, uh, David, after we serve the bread, I'll ask you to pray for the cup after we serve that. So listen to the words of institution. For I received from the Lord, Paul said, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the Lord's death together and resurrection. Dennis, would you thank God for his son, Jesus Christ, and his work for us? Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift that you've given to us in Christ, our Savior. And as we approach this, uh, these elements that represent the body and blood of Christ, we know that Christ is our unseen host who is inviting us to come. Father, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to uh, experience through these elements the spiritual food and drink that they represent and as we approach the bread we are reminded that Christ's body was broken on the cross for our sins and may we give you thanks for that great sacrifice now in Jesus name amen <laughs>